Good morning, Summit Church. Good morning. I uh, hope you guys have had a good week, or actually, I guess, a good couple of weeks since uh, we all saw each other last. Um, it's actually been a pretty good week for me. Uh, I had something big happen this week. On Monday of this week, I had the first um, ever book that I have written was released on Monday. Uh, it was called Breaking the Islam. Thank you, Mom. Uh, it was called Breaking the Islam Code. Thank you. About, it's about how to share Christ with, 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 uh, with Muslims if you have friends or, or such like that. I, I feel like God immediately humbled me, though, because after it was released on Monday, um, I went on Amazon.com on Tuesday. One day after it had been on sale, it was already marked down 33%. <laughs> I kid you not. And there was already one used copy for sale. <laughs> like somebody got it, read the introductions, like, that's it, putting it back up on, on for sale. So... Uh, anyway, that's, uh, that, that's what happened in my life this week. Um, well, good to see everybody out there. I uh, was a little worried that after I preached on predestination a couple of weeks ago, that God was going to predestine a bunch of y'all not to come to church here anymore. So uh, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're back, and I hope you are ready to dive back into the book of Ephesians. Um, I will say this. Having to explain what the Bible means when it says that we are chosen from the foundation of the world has given me a whole new way to measure the difficulty of sermon preparation. Uh, everything now seems like it's a breeze. Uh, so anyway, all right, book of Ephesians, if you have your Bible, and I certainly hope you do, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are going to be, and we're going to look at the second half of the first chapter. The second thing that Paul does in the book of Ephesians is he prays for the believers in Ephesus. And I am so grateful for this prayer that it is recorded here because it shows us how to pray. It shows us what God most wants for us. I'm going to tell you, this is how I pray for my family. It's how I pray for my kids. It's how I pray for my wife. It's how I pray for you. I don't know if you know this or not, but the elders of our church pray together each morning. I don't mean we come together and, and pray, but at our homes, we pray every day through the membership directory here at the, the Summit Church. And this is often the, the lines of this prayer that we're going to look at is what we pray for you. All right, here we go. Verse 15. Because I have heard of your faith, you new Ephesian believers, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I want to focus on those words. Let's stop there for a minute, okay? And I want to focus on those words, the spirit of wisdom, that God would give us a spirit of revelation, that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. This is a prayer, you see, for spiritual sight. Paul has just taught them, if you recall the first part of this chapter, he's just taught them this incredible truth about how much God loves them. It is a love that is deep and wide and complex, and in many ways, it is a mystery to us. So after Paul tells them these deep, mysterious, awesome things about God's love, about like how 
He chose us from the foundation of the world, and there's never been a time where he didn't love us, and how even in the pain that we go through, it doesn't mean that God didn't love us. In fact, he's working it all for our good. After he tells us those mysterious things, he prays for them to be able to see it, to see it with their heart, or to feel it. You see, sight is one of the most valuable things we possess, physical sight. You don't want to lose it, because your life would be drastically different without physical sight. If you've ever thought you might lose it, you know how, how scary that is. I remember having that thought when I had LASIK surgery. Uh, anybody gone through that? Raise your hand if you went through LASIK surgery. Uh, maybe I'm just worried too much, but in the middle of it, I started having these thoughts about what happens if this goes wrong. Um, the whole thing was, was, was pretty remarkable um, in a good and bad way. Um, I met with the doctor like one time, and she gave me the exam, told me to come back on a certain day. I show up at the, 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 the place they do the operations. On that day, I sit in the waiting room. Um, a little nurse comes out and hands me a um, couple pills, and she says, take these, and I take them. About 10 minutes later, they come and get me, and I, I meet the doctor for the second time ever. Um, we exchange, like, small talk for, like, 20 seconds. And, how about those heels? Yeah, how about them? All right, sit down. All right, and so I sit down, and, they, and this is, the, like, the, the traumatic part. They lay you back, and then they take this little, like, clamp thing, and they, you know, they, like, pry your, your, your eyelids open. And then this little, like, vacuum cleaner, I don't know what else to call it, comes out of this machine and just... It sucks down on your eye, just, you know, pulls it out, and then, you know, and then you have to watch this whole thing, because there's nowhere else to look, right? I mean, you know, it's like, and then, like, as you're watching this little, you know, they don't give you any warning about this, this little knife goes right across your vision, and it, like, cuts your cornea, and then they take their little tweezers, and they pull back your cornea, and then this laser goes to work, and it's like a little kaleidoscope going on in your eye, and you can smell it burning, your eye, kid you, I know I'm a great commercial for LASIK, I realize that, but, but in, the middle, in the middle of watching this little kaleidoscope, I had this thought, I was like, what if there's an earthquake? You know, what if it, like, because then my, it's like, I'm going to lose everything, and my wife was pregnant with her first child, and I was like, I'm not going to be able to see my baby, and, 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 I, and I just like, was like, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, I was like, Stop! I mean, you might check the weather channel. It's like, is there an earthquake scheduled? Or I don't know what's going on. And, and then I'm telling you, it lasted like four minutes. And then she, you know, she, she moved my cornea back on and she painted it with some kind of super glue thing. And then she did the other eye. And from start to finish, that whole thing lasted like 11 minutes. And then I got up and I stood up and I could see 2020. I even offered to, to drive home. My wife wouldn't let me because I was on too many drugs. But um, I, she, I offered to drive home and I got home and I went to sleep. Um, and then woke up after the Valium had worn off and, and then felt like my eyes were about to give birth uh, is sort of what, how I would describe it. But um, the point of all that, okay, for those of you that are thinking about LASIK, be encouraged, okay? That's, that's... <laughs> now, actually, I had a, uh, a, a LASIK surgeon hit me between the two services out here a minute ago, and she's like, we've actually made a lot of improvements until, uh, since then, so uh, it's a lot less, a lot less dramatic. Um, the point I'm trying to make is this physical sight is something you don't want to be without because you know there's so much of life that you'd miss out on spiritual sight is something that you don't want to miss out on either and Paul says I don't want you to just consent to the fact that God loves you I don't want you just to consent to the fact that God is is working all things for your good I don't want you to embrace that cognitively and tell me that you believe it I want you to feel it I want you to feel it down in your soul. In the Psalms, David said it this way. He said, 
I want to I taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, it's one thing to know with your mind that honey is sweet or even to understand why it's sweet or to know that some rich chocolate dessert is sweet. It's quite another thing to have that sweetness burst alive in your mouth. And Paul is praying that you would taste and see experientially how God cherishes you, that you would sense his closeness to you, and that he is working in your soul and in your life. Because you see, that's what really changes your life. Seeing God's majesty with the eyes of your heart and feeling his love for you changes your heart. That creates in you a love and a craving for him. A love that, that drives out the cravings for sin. A love that overcomes addictions and a love that overcomes selfishness. It's a love that overflows into a love for others. Now God, I've told you guys this a lot, but God doesn't want religious rule followers. That's not the point. He is calling out a people to love him and to worship him. And let me just say again, for many of us in this church, this is the one element we're missing. That's what makes this prayer so relevant to us. You see, our problem is not that we don't understand cognitively the truths about God's love. Our problem is that we don't feel them. We don't taste them. We, they haven't burst alive in our hearts. The sense of God's love for us individually never causes us to weep or worship. Many of you guys are, are, are good at memorizing and knowing stuff. You know what Christians believe and you know what they should do, but you don't flow with passion for God. Let me ask you, let me just ask it to you like this. How often do you feel dry spiritually? I mean, your theology is fine. It's not like there's some great heresy in what you believe. You're not involved in some big embarrassing sin. You just don't feel love for God. Guys, the point is not what you believe or not just what you believe or what you do. The point is loving God. Jesus said all that we believe and all we do hangs on that. Loving God because that's how God feels about you. For Paul, he, he can't even start talking about the love of God without bursting into worship and praise. Several times in Paul's letters, he'll make statements like this. Don't you realize how big and how huge and how deep and how glorious this God and his plan that he has for us is. In one place in Ephesians, Paul makes an incredible contrast, which most Baptist people have never put together. He says, he says Ephesians 5.18, right here in the book of Ephesians, do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery and abuse and broken relationships. Instead, you got to catch that word instead. Instead of being drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, in contrast to being drunk with wine, you should, in a way, be high on the Spirit. The difference, of course, is that being high on the Spirit doesn't lead to debauchery and broken relationships. It leads to peace and it leads to righteousness and holiness. But you see, there is supposed to be some similarities in being drunk and being in love with God. Can we have a moment of honesty together? Is this in any way true about you? Is there any way that you could say that your emotions for God 
are similar to what a drunk man feels when he is inebriated. We Baptists know you shouldn't get drunk with wine. But how many of us are so filled with the Spirit that it's like we're drunk with passion for Him? The point of it all is to know God and love Him, not just to avoid sin and believe right things. And passion for God, you see, begins with sight. It begins with seeing who God is and how much God loves us. So this is what Paul prayed, that we would see God with the eyes of our heart and be overcome with a sense of awe and worship in his presence. And this is what I pray for you. And honestly, this is what I'm trying to do as I preach. I've undergone a change in the last few years of being your pastor teacher. You see, I used to look at the goal of my messages as being to try to teach you to go and do something, motivate you, you know, try to get you to learn something. I used to give you a little action list at the end. Here's what you got to go do to change your life. And I still give you action steps. Yeah, I understand that. But my goal now is for you to leave worshiping. That's the difference in a lecture and a sermon. In a lecture, you leave with knowledge. In a sermon, you leave worshiping. I want you to walk away thinking about how glorious God is. I don't want you to walk away anymore thinking about what you need to go and do for God. I want you to walk away amazed at what he's done for you. I want you to leave with a sense of his awesome size and love because then you'll know what you need to do. Because that sight changes you. And if you can just see who God is, you don't need me up here telling you all the time, do this, don't do that. He'll motivate you to do this. You'll just do it because you'll see and you'll know God. That sight changes you suddenly in the light of that sight. All the things that have, captivated, that have captivated your heart, the false idols, the destructive addictions, the selfish dreams and behaviors, the false saviors, they suddenly lose their grip on you. You see, I know now that the only thing that can break the captivating power of sin over you is an intense experience of the love of Jesus. So you need to see with the eyes of your heart, you need to see Jesus it's only a greater love for Jesus that can keep you from giving yourself to sin and to selfishness. I think a lot of times about our college students. I, I, the other watching TV this past week and just caught one of these little things coming up about what goes on at spring break. And I remember thinking, how are they ever going to say no to those things? Especially when everybody around them is doing it. It's just the, what's accepted. How are you going to break the powers of those attractions? Is it because I preach a really good sermon right before spring break and tell you all the dangers of sexually transmitted diseases? Is that going to do it? No. Here's how. It's when you develop a more intense love for Jesus. I want you to learn to love him and be so passionately devoted to his glory that you would not want to dishonor him. And that would give you the ability to say no to sin. That's what he's praying for. See. Let him see and feel and taste. Not know, but know in their heart. So what exactly? What exactly does that look like? What specifically does he want them to see? He gives you four phrases in the next few verses that are four things he wants you to see clearly. And by the way, here's a clue. All they are is a review of the first 11 verses we looked at two weeks ago. He just summarizes them in little kind of bullet points. Here's clarity number one. He wants them to see the hope to which God has called them. 
You see that there in verse 18? He wants them to see the hope to which they have been called. Now, first, let's talk about the word hope. Because a lot of times in English, hope means a desire that you want to come to pass, but you're not quite sure will come to pass. For example, is Carolina going to make it to the NCAA tournament this year? I hope so, okay? But right now, there's nothing really sure about that. In fact, the NIT may be a better bet, right? But biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is certain. In fact, let me give you a definition. Biblical hope is a life-shaping certainty that has not happened yet, but that you are sure is going to happen. What God has determined to give us and what he's making us into, Paul says, is settled forever. God set his love on you from all eternity, and he's never turning back. You are going to know him, you are going to be filled with him, and you're going to be like him. And Paul says, I pray that you might know the certainty of that, and you might know the value of it in your soul. So let's stop for a minute, and let's just ask, why would that be important? Why is it important for us to see that? Let's just give you a couple reasons. Knowing the hope to which we are called would allow us to overcome sin and temptation. Let me give you an analogy. I've often heard that people who overeat consistently do so because they are bored or stressed, and eating is like a way of coping with their boredom or their stress. It adds a little adventure to their life or a way to escape pressure. Well, of course, that's a problem, and it leads to, it leads to poor health because eating is supposed to be enjoyable, yes. But if you are eating food to feed your soul, well, then you're going to overeat. Well, in the same way, when your soul is hungry, you turn to silly pursuits to feed your soul. But having your heart fixed on what God is doing in you and what God is going to give you will keep you from that. C.S. Lewis used the great analogy, and some of you have probably heard it. He said, he said we're like the kid who is... You know, the, the four-year-old who is playing in a mud puddle in his backyard and keeps telling his parents he doesn't want to go with them when they're offering to take him to the beach. Because he's so just, you know, enamored with his mud puddle. And you're like, don't you get it? This is a little mud puddle. It's like that deep. It's that wide. But I'm offering you the beach. It's the biggest mud puddle in the world. But we say no because we're so fixated on this that we don't realize how much more is offered to us. That's what Paul says. I want you to see how much more God has because when you see that, you won't be entrapped by these little distractions and these things that just consume you. The only way you will avoid the trappings of materialism, for example, or the race to get ahead, which is the mantra in our colleges, the only way you'll avoid that is by a greater and more certain hope. If I see the value of God and his kingdom, well, I really feel like I need to have so much nice stuff in my life. No. If I am cherished by the God of the universe, and I know that, will I be driven by the need to have everybody else's approval? No. You show me somebody who is obsessed with making money, who is obsessed with having nice stuff, and I will show you somebody who is not aware at all of the hope to which they have been called. Here's the other thing. Knowing the hope to which you are called not only helps you overcome sin and temptation, it'll help you endure pain in your life. I was thinking this week about 
the worst college jobs. I always love hearing these stories. Um, I feel like I had a few bad ones. I'm sure you did too. I, I don't have time for you to tell me all yours this morning, obviously, but um, so I could get to tell you mine because I feel like mine would be at least be in the top five here in the room. I worked in college one summer. I worked in a food line distribution center freezer. Okay, it was three football fields long. It was negative seven degrees in this freezer. <laughs> you could only work in there for 15 minutes at a time. Then they give you a break to get out of there. Uh, some of you 90 heads, maybe you had this job too. I, I promise you, the closest I ever came to taking up smoking was when working in that freezer. Because all the guys would get off for their break, you know, a little five-minute break, and they'd all go outside and start smoking. And I was watching, you know, I was like, they got fire coming out of their mouth. <laughs> that looks warm. Uh, but I didn't. I just stuck with my Jack Daniels to keep me warm. So, um, <laughs> You don't work in there four hours at a time. Um, then you had to, to get out. And here was the kicker for me. Um, I made minimum wage because they knew that that's what you can do with a college student. I made five fifty. That's what it was at the time. Five fifty an hour. I drove twenty minutes out there, twenty minutes back. Worked for four hours. Twenty two dollars before taxes. It was terrible. It was such a drudgery being in this job. Right. Well, let me just kind of change the scenario a little bit. What's what if I had some rich uncle who said to me, son, I want you to learn character. So I want you to take this job over the summer. I'm going to pay you $10,000 an hour if you'll do it well. So now at the end of a shift, I haven't made $22. I've made $40,000. Every week, I'm pulling in two hundred grand. You think it's going to feel like a drag? No, it's going to be awesome. Because I know the hope that God is called me to if you know what god is doing in you and giving to you it changes your perspective on pain in the present paul says if you could just grasp the assurance and beauty of what god is doing in you even your pain now it's not like it goes away but you suddenly your perspective on it changes a couple weeks ago i referred to my friend a, a guy that some of you i know have, have heard of a guy named matt chandler pastor of a church very similar to ours out in texas he's my 35 years old one year younger than me he has three kids um, which are the ages of three of my kids, on Thanksgiving of last year, suddenly drops of a seizure. They take him in, discover a mass on his frontal lobe in his brain. They immediately cut it out, do a biopsy on it, and the tests come back, and that shows that it is malignant. Now he's undergoing chemotherapy, and, and here we got a guy whose life looks so promising, and, and may still be, but everything is ahead of him, who suddenly now is looking at the prospect of not living for more than six months. And he said something the other day that just totally just, just captivated my heart. He said, he said, I'm remembering the words now of C.S. Lewis of a book I read a while ago. C.S. Lewis, who was quoting Paul, who said, when we get to heaven, it's not like we're going to get to heaven and all of a sudden we just understand why everything happened. Oh, I see. That's why that happened. Oh, I see. You know, he said, that's not it. C.S. Lewis, paraphrasing Paul, said, when we get to heaven and we look back on the pain in our life, we say, what pain? What pain? I can't even hardly remember it because of what I see that God produced in it. That's why Paul, in the book of Romans, Paul, a man who was very accustomed to pain and heartache, said these light and momentary afflictions are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So what pain are you enduring right now? Maybe it's somebody you love that's suffering. Maybe it's your own physical pain. Maybe it's bad relationships. Maybe it's a bad marriage. 
you frustrated at work, sexually frustrated in your marriage? Whatever pain you're in, you have the assurance of God's love. And you know that he's fully forgiven and accepted you. You have the knowledge that he is present in all things, working for your good, that he is determined that you will know him and see him and you will be like him. That is the hope to which you are called. So no matter what's happening, whether people are mistreating you or life is blown up on you, even if it's just people annoying you, you can always respond in every situation to what God is doing. But what if you mothers reflected on the fact that when your kids are annoying you, that God in that moment had a plan for you, using that to make you what he wanted you to be? That's the hope to which you're called. Paul says, I want you to see that. I want you to feel it. Here's the second phrase. I want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. See that verse 18? The first thing, by the way, if you write down a one-word description, the first thing he hopes you see is he hopes you see hope. Second thing he wants you to see, watch this, I'll show you. Actually, let's back up, stop. Because I think this one might throw you for a minute. Because that little phrase, it kind of sounds like religious mumbo-jumbo, doesn't it? That you might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So let's break that apart. He's talking about an inheritance. So what is an inheritance? Well, an inheritance is something of great value that you get when a rich relative dies. All right, second question. Whose inheritance is he talking about? This is the part everybody misses. Everybody thinks he's talking about our inheritance. No. He's not talking about our inheritance. Whose inheritance? Look at your Bible. Whose is it? God's inheritance. God has an inheritance? Yes. What is it? The saints. Who are the saints? The football team that's going to lose the Super Bowl tonight? Yes. And no, not here. The saints are all those that God has chosen. You. You are God's inheritance. Paul says, I am praying that you might know that you are God's greatest treasure. Would you stop and think about how staggering that is for just a minute? What is God excited about getting as an inheritance? I mean, think about it. What would you get God as a gift that he didn't already have? I mean, just think about it with like Bill Gates. If you were related to Bill Gates, what would you get Bill Gates as a gift at Christmas? Could you imagine getting Bill Gates something and him be like, wow, I've always wanted one of those. That's a flat screen TV. Look at that. You know? Well, even more so, what do you get God? I am God's inheritance. God considered me so precious to him that Jesus gave up the universe. And he suffered and he died to save me. And Paul is saying, I am praying that you would see that and you would feel it. And you would be overwhelmed by your value to God and by his commitment to you. You're taking notes. Write down for the second one. Write down your worth. Paul wants you to see your hope. Secondly, he wants to see your worth. Later in Ephesians 3, Paul reprays this prayer with different words. And Paul says this, listen to this. This is my favorite passage in Ephesians, I think, the whole thing. I pray that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Let me tell you something about the Apostle Paul in case you're kind of new to study in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is not one prone to exaggeration. He would be totally British if he were alive today. He doesn't usually speak in a lot of flowing, poetic, kind of flowery language. Usually he's like, this is what God is like, and I'm an apostle, so you shut up, okay? Because this is what it is. Here Paul does something that's actually pretty unusual for him. He loses his words. He, he starts to say the love of Christ, it, 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 it just surpasses all knowledge. It even surpasses my ability to describe it. Even though I'm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I still can't describe it. And then he points out these like, starts using this real poetic kind of terminology, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Now, you know, he, he didn't actually say what he means by breadth, length, height, and depth. But I think when you understand, especially Ephesians 1, I really think it's actually kind of obvious what those four words refer to. Again, this is my interpretation. You could challenge it, but just, just look at it. The length. The length of God's love. From all eternity and for all eternity, God chose us from before the foundation of the world, which means there has never been a time ever when God has not known me and loved me. And there will never be a time in the future where he will quit loving me. His love has been from eternity and for eternity. That is the length of his love. Paul in Ephesians 1 described it the way a parent who goes in to adopt a child. We have many families here who've, who've, who've undergone this wonderful ministry of adoption. And they say that when you walk into that orphanage and you see that, that infant baby or that child that is to become your child, first time you lay eyes on them, suddenly in your heart, just this, this overwhelming sense of love for that child that you're just seeing just overflows out of your heart. And you're saying, this one, I'm going to take into my family. I'm going to give them everything. I'm going to love them like they are my own because I'm going to make them my own. I'm going to give them my name. And when I die, I'm going to leave everything to them. He says, that's what God did for you. He looked down through history and said, that one. He chose us from all eternity and he will never quit loving us. The length of God's love. Then there's the height of God's love. I think that's a reference to the intensity of his love for us. Psalm 103, which Paul would have been familiar with, says, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That's how great God's love, how intense it is for us. So when you walk out under the stars and you suddenly have this overwhelming sense of how big the universe is, or you look through a telescope and realize that you're seeing about one one millionth of what's out there, and you're overwhelmed by the size of the universe, that is the height, that is the measure of God's intensity of his love for you then there's the breadth of god's love i think that's a reference to how much it controls all things god has marshaled every molecule of the universe paul tells us in pursuit of his good purpose in our lives now he's using everything he's using our bad luck he's using injustices of others he's even using our own stupid decisions he's controlling everything to to, to accomplish his purpose in our lives. God's love, the control is broad, spans the whole universe. Then there's the depth of God's love. And I think that's a reference to how far God went to save us. How far down God had to reach to rescue us when we were so unlovely and so screwed up. And God reached farther down deep just to get us even when we were so far gone that we had given up hope and i was thinking this week about when you um you single people when you start to date somebody i remember from when i was single, you start to date somebody and everything's going well and then all of a sudden you discover some big huge glaring fault that makes you want to derail the whole relationship 
You know, like that Seinfeld episode where, you know, Jerry breaks up with a girl because she eats her peas one at a time, you know, or she has a weird laugh, right? Or, you know, Brad O'Brien, our West Club campus pastor, uh, before he met Jenna Marie, broke up with a girl because she said espresso instead of espresso because he thought that made her sound like a redneck, right? That's totally made that up. I'm just kidding. Um, You know, is that inappropriate for you to discover a fault and break up with somebody? I mean, I guess... I guess not, although I will say that some of you guys here are way too picky. I always think it's absurd when some guy tells me he's breaking up with a girl because she's got split ends and he's got like some mole in his face with a hair sticking out of it. I'm like, bro, mirror, okay? Get over your pickiness. Is that inappropriate to discover something in a dating relationship that's a fault and walk away from? No, I I mean, I guess that's what dating's for. But y'all, my love for my children is entirely different. I don't discover a fault in one of my daughters, like Karis, my six-year-old. Be like, Karis, sweetie, it's just not working out anymore. Sorry, it's not you, it's me, I promise, you know, so. No, actually, her faults become something that make me love her, if possible, even more. I have compassion on her, and I want to protect her, and I want to help her with her weaknesses. That's how God's love for us was. It was tender, it was compassionate. It was like a father with his child. I mean, imagine if when you first met a girl, she had some label on her that described all of her faults to you, like, like one of those labels on a you know, carton of cigarettes, all the, the ways that she will ruin your life, right? Or, you know, if your online dating service, you get a little tab that you meet my worst, all the ways I'm annoying, all my self-centered habits and all my personal uncomeliness, right? If we had those kind of labels, we'd probably never get asked out on a date But when God saw us, he saw everything. He saw our flaws and our shortcomings, and he loved us anyway. Paul says this love that surpasses our knowledge to comprehend, or even with me with an inspired pen to accurately describe, this is the love that I want you to feel, and I want you to taste. By the way, real quick, do you see in Ephesians 3 that that that's what it means to be filled with the fullness of God? A lot of times people have questions about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I went to college with a guy who would talk about, um, he went to a, one of those really kind of out there churches, and he would come back on Sunday, and I'd be like, how was church? He'd be like, man, it was great. Man, the Spirit of God was totally there. The guy, you know, in front of me totally fell over, and the guy beside me started barking like a dog, and this dude over here started clucking like a chicken, and this other dude took a lap, and man, the Spirit of God was there. That is not what the Spirit of God does. All right, what Ephesians says means, look at it. What Ephesians says it means to be filled with all the fullness of God is to have a sense of the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of God's love in your soul. Here's your third phrase. We've got we to keep moving. Clarity number three. He wants us to see what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's verse 19. He prayed that you would know how much power is at work in you and how much power is available to you. It's interesting to me, watch this, the measure of God's power that he chose. You see that next verse? It says, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The measure of God's power that Paul gives to us is what? The resurrection. Now, honestly, I feel like if I had been writing this, I I, I try to do this with you guys to show you like if I were an apostle what I would have written and why it would have been wrong, all right? If I had written this, I would think I would naturally have wanted to measure God's power by the powers of creation. Because creation's pretty impressive. Something out of nothing, I'd have been like, did you see how big the universe is? That's pretty awesome. That's the measure of God's love. 
Or I would choose some of the marvelous complexity of creation and say, God created that. Like, for example, this week, um, don't ask me why, but I learned all about the woodpecker. All right, so uh, this is your Wikipedia moment for the week, so, so hang with me. The, the woodpecker, this is awesome. The woodpecker has a shock absorber in its neck that gives it the ability to tap the tree at 20 times per second. You know, like that. 20 times per second. It has a little shock absorber that makes it do, do the, and then inside of its mouth, it has a tongue that is six inches long, which may not be that impressive until you realize that the length of the woodpecker itself is six inches long. Its tongue is the length of its body. Where does it put it? Right, I mean, imagine if I had a tongue six feet long. And what this thing does is it goes back in its head and it wraps around its skull and it works like a shock absorber so that when it hits the tree, it doesn't knock its brains loose. Right? And then when it gets the hole in the tree, that six-inch tongue comes out and it's got this little like skewer barb on the end of it that grabs a hold of this worm six inches deep in the tree and snags it and pulls it out. I'd be like, that is the power of God. <laughs> and that's what's available to you. With the size, again, of the universe. But that's not what Paul chooses. That's not the measure he used. He said the power at work in you is the power of resurrection. Resurrection is the greatest possible power imaginable. Because it is the power to bring life out of death. Creation is bringing life out of nothing, which is pretty impressive. But resurrection is bringing life out of death, which is even greater because death is not a neutral power. Death is a corrosive, destructive, negative power. Death is at work in the world because you and I rebelled against God. Our rebellion brought his wrath and his curse of death on our lives, and it ruins God's creation and our lives. It's a destructive power, and everything we as humanity touch ends up being destroyed by Paul invoking the power of resurrection, he is saying, listen, this is good news. God is not only, to, only able to create good stuff out of nothing, he is able to create good things out of even bad things. And this is good news for a number of you. Because a number of the most sensitive parts of our lives are touched by the decay of death. Many of you are consumed by destructive emotions, you are, obsess are obsessive, you are jealous, you are selfish, you are hateful, you are controlling, you are domineering, you are materialistic, and that's why every relationship that you touch turns sour. Many of you have addictions, sexual addictions, drug addictions, power addictions, attention addictions, and you can't get over them. Many of you, your lives are consumed by confusion that results from the blindness that comes from sin. Many of you are broken, and you feel like you're broken beyond repair, but God brought life out of death, and that means he can bring life out of even the deadest and most decayed parts of your life. God can give you the power to overcome and break selfishness. He can give you the power to have self-control. He can give you courage where previously you were a coward. He can repair hopelessly damaged relationships. I know some of you right now when it comes to your marriage are in despair because you say nothing works. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ came out of the grave. And that means he can bring life back to your marriage. Power of God, able to make you love God rather than stuff. Paul says, I want you to see that power, a power that can change you 
and heal you. And some of you need to quit trying to make life work. You need to quit turning over a new leaf. And you instead just need to surrender to this great stream of power that flows from the tomb of Jesus Christ that is available to all who believe. One last thing, and then I'm going to ask you a couple, three questions in conclusion. One last thing. Paul prays that we would be able to see that God, look at this, number four, put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. For number four, write down finality. Paul wants us to see the ultimate finality of God's plan. One of the biggest themes of Ephesians 1 is that Jesus has a plan and a purpose and nothing, nothing will ever trump his will or thwart his purpose. Ever. And in this verse, it says that God's one great purpose on the earth, the end to which he is controlling everything, is the work that he is doing, get this, in the church, in you, making you into people who love him and who resemble him and that he lives inside of. I was thinking this week about those movies where you, know, you, you got like, it's like a military movie, and so they got the big map of the world, and they got their map and all the important military movements. Or, you know, Wall Street, and they got all the different, you know, developments going on in the, in the financial sector. Um, you, you, uh, Jack Bauer, you know, all the different places that there's terrorist activity out there in the world. Sports Center, all the different, you know, major sports events. These maps are tracking what is going on that is important in those arenas. You're going to find this hard to believe. But on Jesus' big map, the one that he has in his control room of what's going on in the world, you know what's there? His work in you, in the church. And all this other stuff, what's going on in Hollywood, what's going on in Washington, D.C., and what's going on at Sports Center, and, and what's going on in the White House, and what's going on around the earth, that's all just background noise. The big deal on the earth from God's perspective is what God is doing in his church and in the progression of his church to those places where his church is not known yet. The finality of God's plan. I want you to see it. I want you to feel it. I want you to arrange your life around it. So all that makes me ask three questions that I want you to consider. I give them to you quickly and I want you to take them home. I want you to think about them. Number one, what is your source of hope and worth and power? What's your source of hope and worth and power? You see, all of you have this source. You got something, all of you, whether you're a Christian or not, you've all got a sense of hope. Your hope for the future is in something. Maybe it's in your finances, maybe it's in your 401k, maybe it's in your family. There's this myth out there that that people who aren't Christians walk around. This is, you know, when I grew up, this is like the songs we sang, people need the Lord. Like they're all walking around like they're hopeless. You know, we just gotta go up and tell them, hey man, God loves you. Oh, really? No, that's not the problem. All of them have hope. The question is, is there hope in something that actually is not an illusion or is there hope placed in something that ultimately will fail them? Worth. All of you have a sense of worth. Maybe you base your worth on what others think about you. Maybe you base your sense of worth on what kind of car you drive or how much you make. That's why you go ridiculously into debt to live in a neighborhood and drive a certain kind of car because you, that suddenly makes a statement about you. Worth. That's why you get so jealous. That's why you get so angry when people criticize you. Power. You have a sense of power. Well, this is what you think will make the future work out. It's when the chips are down, it's kind of what you turn to. Maybe it's your skill. Maybe it's that you're a good person. Maybe you've got a good family, good upbringing. Maybe it's your college degree. It's, it's what you think 
is a, that is true about you that will give you the ability to survive. Here's the point. Every source of hope and worth and power besides Jesus ultimately will fail you. What happens when your finances crumble? That's what's made this recession so hard for some people because that was their hope and all of a sudden it was gone. If your hope is in family, that, a lot of people, that's where their hope is. But that's all well and good until you turn 35 and you're still single. And everything you've had as a hope for the future, you're single and you don't know how you can make it in life. Or maybe you're 45 years old and suddenly you're divorced. And your hope is gone. Maybe it's one of your kids makes bad decisions and, and strays. Maybe it's that your spouse died untimely. If your hope is in your family, it crumbles. Every source. Go back to my friend Matt Chandler for a minute. I told you his, he had no symptoms when he dropped unconscious on Thanksgiving Day. And a friend of mine and I were talking about it this week, and he said, you know, you and I have no idea what we're carrying around in our body right now. I may carry in my body this morning the very thing that will end my life tomorrow, and I have no idea. You don't either. Is your hope in something, is your worth, is your power established on something that cannot be taken away? Some of you that are going through pain, some of you that are in the middle of this recession of whatever kind, this actually could be a good thing in your life. Because maybe before it's too late, God is opening your eyes to the fact that your whole life is built on an illusion. And one germ, one stock market crash, one poor decision, and everything that you live for is gone. Where's your hope, worth, and power? Number two, what are you living for? What are you living for? You see, everything else besides Jesus' purpose is going to fail. God has determined that all of the universe is going to serve Jesus' purposes. I've often encouraged you here, especially you students, that you ought to compare your life to a movie. And if your life were a movie, who would the main character be? Because if the main character is going to be you, that movie's got a really bad ending. But if the main character is Jesus, that's a movie that goes on forever, because that's what Ephesians 1 says. All of it, everything going on in the universe is going under Jesus' feet, who is the head of the church, and that's everything. And I'm telling you, some of you need to give up your small dreams, your dreams which are going to yeah, maybe you'll you know, have the American dream or whatever they call it, but then it's all going to fall apart and you're going to get to the end of your life and realize when you stand before Jesus that you wasted everything. If you died today, what would you be able to carry into eternity that would matter? If you died today, what would you be able to carry into eternity that mattered? And some of you need to radically readjust the focus of your life and quit living as if the movie was about you and start finding your part in the movie of what Jesus is doing on the earth. That leads me to the last question here, number three. Do you realize how much power is available to you? Not just the power to overcome sin, but the power for ministry. All of resurrection power, you see, is available to the church. Listen to this. I sometimes think that the power of God is a lot like for the church, like unclaimed checks that are written out to us. They're ours, but you just never go get them, and so they, they totally go to waste. You realize that if resurrection power has been given to the hands of the church, listen, that means that God really could transform our community. God really could change our world. The hesitation is not in him. That he's got the power of resurrection available. The hesitation's in us. I realize I'm looking at a group of people right now that God has put in their hands the power 
of resurrection if they would access it. And on my other hand, I've got 6,500 unreached people groups in the world that have never heard about Jesus. And the question is, what happens if this group doesn't release resurrection power to this group? Because the hesitation is not in Jesus. The hesitation is in us. I remember reading the biography of Hudson Taylor who said, he was a missionary to China. He said, I realized that there were still millions of Chinese who had never heard about Jesus. And I knew, suddenly, I knew that if I had asked God to raise up people to send to them, God would have done it. He said so. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers to the harvest. He said, suddenly I was overcome by a sense of blood guiltiness. They hadn't heard because I hadn't asked. God had declared his power. He had said that all authority had been given to me. He had put in my hands the power of the resurrection, and I had simply failed to access it for the millions of Chinese who had never heard about Jesus. All the power to reach all the unreached people groups in the world is in the church. Release it. I've thrown out to you as a congregation, there are five groups here in our city I want to see God's power brought into. Um, They are the homeless, recovering prisoners, fosters and orphan children. Uh, They are unwed mothers and high school dropouts. I have no idea what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to do it, but I know all the power for us to transform those groups here in Raleigh-Durham is right here in this church and under the sound of my voice. I don't know what you're supposed to do with it. I'm just throwing it out there. Jesus says to us, Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance because they're my inheritance and I'm waiting on you to ask for College student, what are you doing with your life? Resurrection power for the world, the ability to complete Jesus' mission is here. It's you. Put up your small dreams. Quit messing around with the American nightmare dream, whatever. And go forward to what God has put in front of you and release his resurrection to the world. Don't waste your life. All right? Let me pray for you. Bow your heads if you would. There's one thing our community needs. It's the presence of God. The presence of God comes through the church, which means the thing we most need is to have our eyes open. Father, I pray that you would open my eyes so that I would preach as a man who has seen you. So that the passion you put in me would be contagious to those in this room. And the passion you put in their hearts from having seen you in reality would spread to our community. That what would be said is that there is a God of mercy and forgiveness and resurrection power who is alive and working at the Summit Church. To him be glory in the church forever and ever. Father, I pray for those who have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray that today, before they leave, they would ask the person that brought them or who invited them Say, I want to make Jesus my hope and my power and my worth. I want to take my hope and my power and my worth. I want to no longer place that in myself or stuff. I want to place it in Jesus. I want to receive what he has offered to save me, how he's died for me to forgive my sin. I want to receive him as my Savior. Don't let them leave until you finish that work. In Jesus' name, amen.